This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Pastor Nick Hall. Pastor Hall is an evangelist, an international speaker, and the founder of Pulse, which is a global movement that seeks to empower the church and awaken the culture to the reality of Jesus. He sits on the leadership councils for the U.S. Lucerne Committee, the National Association of Evangelicals, and is widely known as his generation's successor to Billy Graham. Nick, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, Mark. Glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming. So uh, your chosen passage is uh, Habakkuk 3.2. And uh, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Now, unlike Jonah, which is also a minor prophet, people actually don't know much about Habakkuk. It is kind of one of these hidden books in the Old Testament. It is. So tell us about Habakkuk, which is a short book. And uh, that's why it's a minor prophet, not because he's unimportant, but because the book is short. And uh, so tell us about Habakkuk and Habakkuk 3.2 and why this is important to you. Yeah, well, it's the eighth book of the minor prophets in the Bible. The theologians, historians kind of think it is uh, around the 7th century B.C. And uh, yeah, it is interesting because you're kind of in this time of, um, you know, conflict and you have this prophet that's kind of crying out to God almost that like asking, asking why the Lord is using these kind of Chaldeans, Chaldeans, the Babylonians, like, why is there judgment? Why is there hardship? And so it's kind of this like man who's, I've always thought of it as it's it's a man who is trying to have a conversation with God in the midst of a really hard time. And the reason I love the book is it, it exemplifies that God welcomes our, our humanity, right? and welcomes our uh, frustration, like the why God prayers, like this isn't fair prayers. And it also represents like how when God opens the prophet's eyes, we actually see his heart change. And so from the beginning of the chapter or the beginning of the book, when he says like, why, why, why? And then at the end, it like turns to this like beautiful prayer. And so that's the passage that I chose today. Because in, in the beginning, Habakkuk is... um bemoaning the moral failures of his people, the Jews of the seventh century BC. And God says, I'm going to send the Chaldeans to destroy him. And Habakkuk says, whoa, I didn't mean that. They're much worse. And then we come to the prayer that, that you talk about. Yeah. So should I, re- should I read it? Please do. Absolutely. All right. Habakkuk 3.2 says this, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So what's going on in Habakkuk's mind as he is foreseeing with God's acknowledgement that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, who are just about as bad a people as could be, are about to come and destroy his people? Man, can you imagine what's going through his mind? I, I just see this passage, and I, I've related with it since I was uh, 17, 18 years old, was when I first stumbled across this obscure book. And you know, I related to it because, man, there was a lot of like why God things that I was facing as I watched what was happening in my generation. And so I think that's what Habakkuk is feeling throughout this book. And yet 
in chapter three, we see his heart saying, God, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of what you've done. Lord, would you do it in our day? Right? So it's almost like he's appealing to God and he's saying, God, you are merciful. You have parted the seas. You have, you have saved your people. You have provided, right? It's kind of like this, like, call to remembrance. It's like, God, don't forget your promises. In your wrath, would you remember mercy? And so, yeah, and, and even as students, we used to think of it like there's three types. Like we would write that passage into three different, almost separate steps. So it's one group that like hears of what God's done. It says, Lord, I've heard of it. And we say, man, there's a ton of people who have heard about what God's done before. There's another group that it goes from hearing about it to standing in awe of it. Right. So Habakkuk says, I've heard of it. I stand in awe of it. Right. So it's not one thing for me to hear about what God's doing and what he's done and like, ah, no big deal, whatever. Or I heard that when I was a kid. That was kind of my faith as a kid. There's another group that's like, man, no, no, no. This, this God moves me to worship and to a posture where I actually see my rightful place in that you are God, you are Yahweh, and I am small. I'm man. And what is man that you're mindful of him? right? But then there's this third step. Like, it's not enough just to hear about it. It's not enough just to stand in awe of it. There's this, this bold, and this becomes a bold prayer now where he's saying, God, I want to see it. You know, I'm not content just to read about it. I'm not content just to worship about it. Like, I want to see you in my generation. And I'm praying for mercy. Habakkuk in this moment is kind of standing in the gap and saying, God, I know what you can do. I know you slayed the giants before. God, turn our heart, save my generation. Would you move in power? So these are basically, you read this as three levels of faith. The first is the acknowledgement of God, which of course is where it all starts. The second is the appreciation and awe of God. And the third is let's act in the world. And that would really explain the reference you made to the Exodus, because what does God teach us in the Exodus in the great Jewish Passover story? What he teaches us is that I'm a God in history who acts in the world in service of liberation. And Habakkuk is calling upon, in your telling, that God. That's the God he knows. That's the God he wants. And that God uses broken people. And so it's like, there also is an acknowledgement there of like, God, I've heard of it. It's you. I stand in awe of it. It's you. And God, I want to be a part of seeing it. So I'm putting myself out there now. You know, I'm going to put feet to my faith. I don't want to just give you lip service, right? Like when God tells, you know, Moses to take the ark and, you know, how to handle it. And like, you got to set your foot in the water. Like, man, somebody had to like step into the water, you know, like somebody had to like put feet to their faith. And it's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to stand in awe of it. It's another thing to do something about it. And we know from scripture, like our God acts on behalf of those who seek him, who wait for him, who call on his name right? Like he says, like, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And, and that's, that's the heart. That's the prayer. And this passage has always just been so close to my heart and passion. And, you know, standing in the midst of what I would say is like a very confusing, lots of brokenness, lots of division, lots of pain, lots of turmoil. And yet in the midst of the storm, God is there, right? He's the God who enters the fire. He's the God who parts the sea. You know, he's the God who makes the dry bones come to life again. That's right. And when we build the tabernacle in uh, Leviticus, it says we put them, referring to the tablets, we put them plural into the ark. So the question is, what's the plural? And the answer is, we put the whole tablets and the broken ones. 
the ones that Moses smashed and that he broke, go into the holy ark along with the whole one because God loves the broken. And the great Kutzker Rebbe said that, he says, if you have somebody over your home, you would never serve them with broken utensils. But God only works with broken utensils. Yeah, if God only had perfect candidates, he wouldn't have much to work with because we all fall short. You know, we all mess up. But man, God, he's faithful when we're faithless. And hopefully that can encourage somebody today, right? You may not have the faith or even the emotional aptitude right now. You may feel just low. And yet we're reminded that God meets us when we're weak and heavy laden. He loves to uh, raise up the orphan and the widow and he hears the cries of his people. And he's still listening, like the mystery of the universe that the God of heaven hears us and responds you know, to his kids, right? That he's this, this loving God, this father who sees us, hears us. He draws near to us. That's right. And he works with the broken. And we see that too in the story we just read in Yom Kippur, the book of Jonah, where there's nobody in the history of the world, perhaps, there's nobody of faith who ever had more issues than Jonah. I mean, God comes to Jonah, tells him to go to Nineveh. He decides to run away to Tarshish. Then he runs away to sleep. Then he tries to run away to death. And God doesn't give up on him. He keeps working with him. Yep. Love it. I mean, throughout scripture, right? You see broken people, you know, these broken vessels. Like I, I tell people all the time when they, they say a couple things to me, they say like, man, the Bible's boring. The Bible's boring. Have they ever studied it? Yeah. That's what I say, man. This is not boring. Like this is the most radical, controversial, crazy book. Like it is anything but boring. It's hard to, it can be hard to read. Right. You can, you can say anything you want about it, but not boring. Yes. Yes. And then, and then they'll say like, oh, God only uses like perfect people. Like I'm kind of disqualified or I've done too much wrong. And you're just like, man, like somebody says, man, the great heroes of the Bible, I, I, you could say, man, the, you could call them the great sinners of the Bible. Like these are people who do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, go the wrong place, sleep with the wrong person, you know, kill the wrong person, like everything wrong in the book is in there. And these are the people that God uses. And so then it's like, no, no, no. If you feel broken, if you feel weak, you're actually the perfect candidate because you're the one who knows it's not about you. It's only going to be because of God. That's right. And I, and I suppose you could say to that person, do you think you're worse than King David? Yes, exactly. Jonah? I mean, you're right. The, the, the greater the biblical figure, the greater the flaw that person has. Every great biblical figure has massive flaws. Abraham, Moses. I mean, Moses doesn't get to the promised land, among other things. Yeah, and he's afraid. He's afraid, right? He's already seen God like talk to him from a burning bush, and yet he's too afraid to go like speak up when God says go. He's like, I can't speak. I'm not of eloquent speech. Right. God comes to Abraham, and Abraham still says to God, go prove it. Yes. Well, and how many times does he have to say his wife is his sister? I mean, come on. That is like the number one, like, dude fail. Like, you can't even stand up for your wife. You know, it's like, come on. And yet he's the father of, of all of us. I know. It's like, man, it's, it's kind of like me. You know, I, I'm from North Dakota originally. I live in Minnesota now. And, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, like I travel all over the country and I'm like, man, what were my ancestors thinking? Like, how did they survey all of the land and decide this is where we should live? Like, did the wagon wheel fall off or... Are we a few fries short of the Happy Meal? I don't know. Are we just really tough? You know, I'm, I'm going to bank on the tough one. Go with that. You know, but in faith, yeah, like, man, we come from a line of people who don't have it together. But that's the thing. I'll tell people, man, my favorite thing about 
being a part of this army of, of believers is also my least favorite thing about it. Like my favorite thing is that God welcomes everyone, even people like me. My least favorite thing is that God welcomes everyone, even people like that guy. Like it's the most beautiful thing that man, God's arms are wide, right? Like there is room at the table of grace for anyone who will come. And yet it also is kind of frustrating because we take what the world sees and then we try to apply it to our faith and say, no, 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 if you don't look this way, if you don't act this way, if you don't do these things, if you don't vote this way, if you don't whatever, then oh, you're not quite what we're looking for. But that's not the heart of God. No, you can't get that from the Bible. Yeah, he doesn't leave us where we are. I'm not saying that. He's not saying, hey, do whatever you want. You do you. That's not in the Bible. But you know, it also isn't in the Bible that says, okay, do all these things and then you're going to be good enough and then you're going to earn it and then you're going to... No, it's all about like that he's done it, that he's doing it, that he is God. We're not. So as a pastor and an evangelist, how do you get people to go from step A of Habakkuk's three-part system to step three? How do you go from getting someone to acknowledge God or maybe even in our second... In ancient times, nobody was an atheist, nobody. But now we may even have a step zero, which is there is no God. Nobody would have said that in ancient times. They would have been pagans, they would, but they would not have been atheists. So you go from, how do you get someone to go from step zero, there is no God, to Habakkuk step one, which is abstractly there's a God, but effectively he doesn't have anything to do with me, to step three, which is I want God in my world as the great liberator like he was for Moses and the Jews at the Exodus. Yeah, I mean, I only see like a couple ways you know, one is, man, it's like, it takes a lot of prayer. And this is where like the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. This is where you see like Elijah praying and how God uses Elijah's prayers. This is how you see like God moving. So like when you're praying for your loved one, when you're praying for your church, when you're praying for people that you long to be in right relationship with the God of heaven. It's a spiritual battle. Like this is a spiritual thing that's happening. This isn't just like an emotional thing or an intellectual thing. Like we need God to do what only God can do. Now that doesn't let us off the hook though, right? But I do just start there because I do think that it's like, I can want someone to get from, you know, point A to point B to point C but ultimately, like I can argue them till I'm blue in the face. I can give them every good defense. And I mean, we all have those people in our lives where it's just like, I can't explain it, but they don't get it. Their heart seems hard. Something happened when they were growing up. They got burned by, you know, their community, whatever. And so that's where it's like coming in, in that heart of like, man, I'm going to fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. But then I do think there's things we can do. And like what I'm always doing especially with the young people that we're working with is I want to give them a God-sized vision. Sometimes I think we as God's people, we don't give people a big enough vision of what God can do, right? And so it's like, I'm always trying to tell stories of what God has done through scripture, about what God has done through history, and about what God is still doing today. Because I want to whet your appetite, right? In the same way, like if I'm an athlete, people are like, oh, you got to be like, you know, Usain Bolt, or you want to look at like, you know, LeBron James or Steph Curry, or, you know, you look at like the pinnacle of your craft, right? And you're like, man, look at what's possible. And you get all these young people like, oh man, I got to get the shoes and I got to get the gear and oh man, I got a traveling ball and it's consuming. And yet I think in faith, sometimes we're like, just please stay just please stay like, 
you know, if you could just give just a little bit. Right. So you want to give them that God-sized vision. Yes. You're right. You're right. Every child athlete has that vision, right? I mean, how many kids, I mean, I remember just being in the driveway and pretending I was in the 1979, 1980 NBA All-Star game, right? Like that's what every kid does. Like they pretend they're the uh, great player of their day and they can do great things. And I think it's such a powerful idea. You combine the God-sized vision with, I think, the wisdom from the Kutzker Rebbe, which is, he would say to his students, how far is it from east to west? And the students say, I don't know, Jerusalem is thousand. He said, no, 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 one step. If you want to be different, just go one step today, another step tomorrow. And then, you know, by the end of the period, you've gone a pretty good distance. I would also add to that because that's such a good point. It's starting to normalize what faith looks like because in my life, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, right? Like it's not these like, you know, voice from the cloud moments that have gotten me from here, from where I was, right? No, it's, it's simple steps. Like it's the next yes. And it's like starting to see your life in the significance of what God can do in the ordinary and how like every moment can be sacred if we allow it to be. Absolutely. I mean, in Judaism, we have a hundred daily prayers and it ends up being more than that, but it's like for every action, there's a prayer. Like almost everything. Why? Because everything's a miracle. You know, you wake up in the morning, you open your eyes and you see that is a miracle. You know, then when we go to the bathroom, we say it's a miracle that the things that open, open and things that should close, close a miracle. I mean, you're right. Everything's a miracle. And the more miracles you identify in your life, the more appreciation of God you're going to have and the more grateful you're going to be. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I and I just see it all the time. Like sometimes people will say to me, oh, man, Nick, I'm going to go do this. And and I can't wait for when I'm older and then I'm going to do that. And, and I'll tell them, hold up, like, don't wait until then to do what you feel like you're supposed to do. Like, if you're not doing it where you are, why would God want you to export what you're not doing over there? Like, he was faithful with the little, he's going to give more, right? And so, like, I believe that God entrusts us with time and relationships and opportunities and that those that are faithful with what they've been given that he's going to expand that territory, right? There was a big thing uh, several years ago where everybody was praying the prayer of, of uh, Joaz. Uh, and it was like, God, expand my territory. And or Jabez, it was Jabez, the prayer of Jabez. Yeah, and I just think there's just simple things there of like, man, just own the ground that you're walking on. Pray over your uh, relationships and your neighbors and be intentional, like do good in the way you live your life. You know, be a person of integrity. That's like some of the most radical thing you can do today. It's just be, be kind. Like, I wish that wasn't radical. Exactly. And God loves it. I mean, you know, in Leviticus, there's this section, and this happens, I think, throughout the Torah, but I'm thinking of the section of Leviticus, I believe, 25, where God is basically going through some mundane uh, rules of commercial conduct about how much interest you can charge this and that. And then he said, I am a Shem, you're the Lord. In other words, saying, this is as important to me. I'm a Shem, you're Lord. I'm asserting who I am when I'm telling you about the basics of buying and selling, because this is of divine consequence to me. Yes. And it is in those things. I was on a call earlier today with a missions movement in India and they were, uh, you know, asking me to encourage their young people and, uh, you know, just young people that are coming from around the world and especially from India. And, you know, they're just trying to like follow God and they're like, man, how do we do this? And how do we do what you're doing? And I'm like, man, you're doing it. Like you're doing it. It is your simple. Yes. Like, God delights in you. And man, every time you feel like this is so scary, like those are the moments when we cry out to God and he meets us, right? Those are the moments where it's like, I, I think of it almost like you got to work your spiritual muscles, 
right? In the same way, like you don't just start to run a marathon off of your sofa. You like have one step at a time. And I just think too many people don't ever work out those spiritual muscles where it's like faith is, I think of it as a muscle. And it's like, man, what took a ton of faith for me back then doesn't take as much faith for me now because I know what God can do, right? But now it's like he keeps expanding your heart, expanding your vision. And you're like, I used to pray for those five kids I could help. Now I want to pray for 500 kids that I could help or 5 million. That's right, because you're working your spiritual muscle. And when you don't do it, I believe, you know, there's a great Christian expression of it's uh, cheap grace. It's not about cheap grace. Completely agree. And obviously, you know, in my faith and in my, you know, calling as an evangelist, right? Like, I'm just looking to this, this guy, this rabbi, Jesus, and we're just saying, man, Jesus gives us a way and he gives us an example and he invites us to be as we are. Like one of my favorite passages I've been talking about that Jesus says in Matthew is just this come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's not about what I need to do. It's about being confident in what God's done and the fact that like there's hope. And I just find that like when I'm working from that place of grace, like you're saying that this is a free gift, that there is God's unmerited favor on my life man, then I'm like generous. I'm a generous person, you know, and I'm able to give away because I have been given. And it's like, well, what would you want me to do for others? Like, what do you want me to do for you? You know? And it's like, I don't want God to treat me, hold everything against me. I hope he's got, you know, so it's like, yeah, I'm going to try to live that way with the people in my life as well. What a beautiful way to look at the world and to derive gratitude from it. Magnificent. So Nick, thank you for such an interesting conversation deriving from this passage, which most listeners, including me, had never considered before. Now, the concluding question always goes from one sacred text, the text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And in the book, he says, "Um, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Nick, in your years of being an evangelist and of starting and leading such an extraordinary movement, what are two things that you learned about humankind? Man, I've learned that people are incredible and interesting and worth slowing down for. I find that so many times in life, we are so busy that we don't even see people. It's like we see them, but we don't right? And we don't have time. And I just would say that the most spiritual moments in my life have come from just unexpected encounters with just people who are image bearers of God. And it's just the fingerprint of the divine that is all around us. And so often we miss it. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, like we can choose, and I've seen this happen in my own life, like how we handle truth Like truth is either a gift or a weapon. And you see people take it with both ways. Like they take something they learn and they use it to hurt other people or bash other people with it. Or they take something they learn and they use it to help other people. And I just think like I have been guilty of both. Like, because when you first learn something and maybe you don't know enough of the depth of it, you take it with the wrong heart, right? Like you have the wrong attitude. Like you want to show off or you want to prove something like, as opposed to realizing like that this is something that I have been entrusted. But when I see that, it also helps me have grace for those that are maybe a little bit like not as nice as I wish they were. Because I think people are on different ends of the spectrum. Like some people, man, they're using their words as a weapon. 
instead of using their words as something that can be a gift. And I also think that's true when the first one isn't true, where we don't see people and hear people and value people for where they are. And so kind of we treat them as a commodity of sorts. But I just think like those two things, like, man, I think people are, yeah, just incredible. And there's life change to be had in like the ordinary moments. And then the second is like how I handle knowledge and how we handle the truths that we have in relation to those around us that are image bearers of God. I think you're so right. You know, in the beginning of Parsha Rie, it says, uh, see, I have put before you a blessing and a curse. In other words, I gave this to you. You choose. Is it a blessing or a curse? That's exactly what you're saying. Here's a truth. Are you going to use it to show off and degrade others? Or are you going to use it to elevate others? It's up to you. It's a blessing or a curse. Yes. But there's so much, man, like being around, you know, doing this work, there's all kinds of things you see and learn about yourself. And, and I think in every journey, I, I think like in right, right now in my life, I'm learning a lot, just the brevity of life and the gift of life and trying not to waste the moments. I'm in the middle of three kids and my older sister was diagnosed with cancer last fall. And uh, six months later, she died, pancreatic cancer. And um, yeah, it's horrible, you know, so season filled with so much grief and pain and loss. And then to have that go into, you know, COVID and go into racial tensions and go into political circus that we're in, in America right now, it's just been a lot of pain, but like what it has forced me to do is to think about what actually matters in life, you know, because the things I worry about and waste time on that don't matter, that are trivial and temporary as opposed to thinking about things that are eternal and are going to last and actually that align with the things of God that he cares about. And that's really who my sister was. Like she loved God with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind. Even at the end, she was just worshiping and loving God, loving Jesus. You know, everybody who would come in and be sad, she would pray for them because she felt bad for them. And it's just, I want to be closer to God, you know, and I want to cherish the people around me. Wow. Beautiful. Well, Nick, thank you for such a fascinating, um, illuminating, and really inspiring conversation for all the great work that you do. Thank you, man. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you. You are the God of the brave. If you leave us a brave-